I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Laura K. Connell, author of It's Not Your Fault, The Subconscious Reasons We Self-Sabotage and How to Stop. Growing up in a dysfunctional family conditioned Laura Connell to find more dysfunction in adulthood, perpetuating a cycle of self-sabotage that wouldn't be broken until her marriage ended and she was forced to face her alcohol addiction head on. She spent 12 years studying the dynamics of dysfunctional families and learned that her habits of self-sabotage were her inner child's way of keeping her safe, a misguided form of self-protection. She now helps readers uncover the subconscious reasons why they hold themselves back and guides them toward a deeper understanding of the ways in which their negative childhood experiences have impacted their lives. She's a trauma-informed author and coach who has had her guest articles featured in the anthology Chicken Soup for the Soul, The Globe, and The Toronto Star. Welcome to the show, Laura. Nice to have you on today. Hi, Catherine. Thank you for having me. All right. We've got... Quite, you have quite a story, I should say. Those self, this well, the subconscious reasons why we self sabotage and how to stop them. Mm-hmm. I think we do. Yeah, I think uh, many people do that. I think particularly women tend to do that. Uh, we don't want to take a look at those things. We don't want to take risks. We're afraid. We want to be safe. All of those things. So you grew up in a dysfunctional family, and let's start with that. Uh, and talk about the point at which you realized the impact that was having on you and your own behaviors of self-sabotage. Sure. So, like you said, I grew up in a deeply dysfunctional home. Uh, There was emotional abuse and neglect, and my mother was, I know now, a narcissist, but she was dealing with a mental health issue that had not been diagnosed. So later on in therapy, I learned that it might have been something like borderline personality disorder. But whatever it was, it kind of robbed her of the ability to feel compassion or empathy for other people, even her children. And so growing up in that environment, as you can imagine, I wasn't getting my needs met. My father on the other side was the emotionally neglectful one. And of course, emotional abuse we know is a form of abuse, but emotional neglect, it's only very recently that we've started to see that that is also a form of abuse. So I was kind of getting it on both sides and I really didn't have a parent figure who was there for me. And so as a child in that environment, you sense very early on that the way to get your needs met are to people please because if you have a parent who's going to go sort of ballistic on you if you set boundaries or stand up for yourself or even say what you need, you learn very quickly that that's not the way to keep myself safe. So there's one example. Another is just being quiet, like trying to be invisible, trying to stay under the radar so you don't get noticed because being noticed means that you're going to get in trouble. And so these things become encoded in us as children and we carry them into adulthood. And so as adults, of course, something like not having boundaries, people-pleasing, not showing up, not wanting to speak up, 
these impact us so negatively as adults. But if you look at it as a child, they were very intelligent because they kept me safe. They did stop me from getting in trouble. And when you're a child, you're totally dependent on your parents. So you look at rejection or abandonment from them as life-threatening, and it actually is. So it makes a lot of sense that you would kind of develop those maladaptive coping mechanisms, but in adulthood, we sometimes don't realize why we're doing it, and that's where the trouble comes, and that's why we find it really hard to stop. And that's where I found myself, and that's why after my divorce, I started doing just trying to get to the bottom of why I was just sabotaging myself over and over, because I knew I was intelligent, I knew I was educated, and I couldn't figure it out. And so getting to the root of the problem and learning how dysfunctional family dynamics really fed into it helped me heal eventually. So you divorce, I guess, was one of the defining moments. And yeah, yeah. and then that helps you to, I guess, maybe not helps, it forces you to take a look at yourself in some way, at least. That is definitely a a crisis, right? That I think for anyone helps, uh, propels you to do that. But, and and then addiction. Um, But my question is like, so once that happened, and you're, I guess, digging deeper into what self discovery, um, realizing that um, you had to do things differently, uh, you give examples in the book um, about how that, how you're able to do that, and I think you get there are tools in the book that uh, help us to do that. Can you? What are some of those tools that you used for yourself? Um, when you were going through this process, when you began to realize what you were doing and your whole self-sabotaging behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, and I think for everyone, the first tool is getting that understanding of where it comes from because a lot of the literature out there on self-sabotage deals with the symptoms without getting to the root of the problem, which, of course, in the book, I argue that the root of the problem is in childhood and how we develop these coping mechanisms. And so... Um, getting to the root of the problem, understanding why you're doing what you're doing, and that's going to be the very first step. And then once you see that you're actually not your worst enemy, you actually are on your own side, but it's just that it doesn't look like that because the coping mechanisms that worked in childhood have become maladaptive in adulthood. And so the next step is to see that the the part of you that is trying to protect you through this self-sabotage is what we call the inner child. And you may have heard that before. The inner child is the one who, when you are a child, it's the one who develops in you and realizes that I'm on my own here. So I need to take care of myself. And as you know, a child doesn't have tools to take care of itself. That's why the parents are there to do that and to teach them at age-appropriate stages, you know, what's the next thing you need to do? How do you face this challenge? How do you deal with this difficult emotion? How do you handle conflict in a relationship, say? 
So if you're not getting any of that in your family, your inner child is just rushing in to try and save you, really, but it doesn't know how to deal with these things that we cope with in the world as adults. So healing that inner child is another step that you can do, and that involves really comforting yourself because so much of the literature, too, is about habit formation or tough love or telling yourself you've got this. And really, those don't work because they don't get to us on a subconscious level. The inner child hears that and says, that's BS. I don't believe that. I don't believe that I've got it or I don't believe that you've got it. I've got to rush in with these um, coping mechanisms that are actually self-sabotage. So the way to heal that child is to let it know that you're the adult now and you can assure it that you don't have to be afraid of, you know, not having your parents take care of you because I'm an adult now. I actually have a job. I have a house. I can go to the grocery store and put food in my mouth and I have access to resources like other people who can help me. So you don't have to rush in to save me with these tactics that aren't working. I'm the adult and I can take care of things. So those are probably the two kind of um, building blocks to healing self-sabotage that I would point to. And what about therapy? What kind of, are there any, or if so, which ones, therapeutic processes that can help you to do this? I mean, this is what we, yeah, we have to take a look at. We need to do this, but we can't do it by ourselves, I'm assuming. You guide other people. You're the coach. You help other people. Who helped you? Absolutely. So a lot of my story is I started going to therapy around age 19 to deal with the impact that my mother was having and and not understanding why I could never forge a functional relationship with her. It was to the point that my relationship with her was based on the fact that she kept threatening to commit suicide if I didn't do what she wanted. And I was basically there because I thought if I wasn't, she would kill herself and it would be my fault. So I started going to therapy and even though the therapist would do intakes on my whole family history, they didn't make the connection between my dysfunctional family upbringing and my self-sabotage. And I don't know if it's because it was the 90s and they didn't have that knowledge yet or I don't know if it's a problem with therapists who aren't trauma-informed because I even heard from a therapist who was in school, like learning how to be a therapist, recently that trauma is still an elective. Like learning about treating trauma is not even mandatory if you're becoming a therapist, depending on where you are. So you have to be really careful about who you go to and that they are knowledgeable about these things, about how dysfunctional families impact us as adults. Because if you don't, they're going to do the same thing, which is just dealing with the behaviors. And that's what I found. And I got a lot of behavior modification strategies. And I'll tell you, they work for a time, but it's like policing yourself. It's sort of like putting a Band-Aid on a really deep wound. It's not going to heal the wound. It'll just kind of cover it up. And then when you stop being hypervigilant, the Band-Aid falls off and you kind of go back to your old patterns. So I would say if you are seeking a therapist to just make sure they know about 
something called complex trauma, and that is another word for childhood trauma. It's, it's what we call PTSD that is from a series of events over a number of years, like in childhood, rather than a single event, which is just simple PTSD. So you can ask them that, and if they have been through it themselves, that helps even more. A lot of therapists have been through childhood trauma themselves, and that's why they're doing what they do. So just ask those questions to make sure it's a good interpersonal fit. And then what I do is trauma-informed coaching. So that can also help. And, and what I use with my clients is a research-backed strategy called mindful self-compassion. And I can tell you a bit about that if you like. Yeah, mindful self-compassion. Tell us what that yes. is. Okay. Yes, and this is a therapeutic modality, and it's been researched extensively by Dr. Kristen Neff, and she's a psychologist who has really given her life to researching this topic. And in essence, what it says is that, you know, being mean to yourself is not getting you where you want to go. Actually, being kind to yourself is the way to get what you need, And a lot of people are afraid to drop that inner critic because they think wrongly, they think that it is helping them. They think it's motivating them. So they think if they're too nice to themselves that um, they're going to drop the ball or, um, you know, they're not going to, they're going to get lazy, that kind of thing. And that's very common to believe that, but it's actually just not true and the research backs it up. So what Dr. Kristen F. proves with her research is that there's three components to self-compassion, and one of them is the simple self-kindness that you would think of when you think of compassion, and this is simply treating yourself as well as you treat other people who are going through something hard. So one of the exercises you can do is Imagine you have a friend who comes to you or someone you love and they're going through a difficult time and you have to write them a letter to um, comfort them. Like, how would you react when someone comes to you with a challenge in their life? And the, the letter you write is probably going to be very encouraging. It's probably going to be sympathetic. It's going to tell them their strengths and what they have to deal with it, the resources they have. But for yourself, when you're going through something difficult, you don't do that. You are mean to yourself. So you say, oh, you know, you've done it again, or how could you be so stupid, or, um, you know, like you blew it, that kind of thing. And so you just turn it around and say, I'm going to treat myself at least as nicely as I treat other people. And that's the first step. Well, that and is so, I want to stop with the first one because that's such, it's so practical. It makes, as you're describing it, it makes so much sense. I mean, you're not going to be mean to somebody who comes and is, <laughs> needs some comfort and is coming to you for help, right? But you would yeah. do that to yourself. And if you're mean to yourself, I mean, nothing good can come of it. I mean, if you're, you're kind right. to yourself, good things, yeah, nothing good can, okay. Um, that's, Yeah, and I have kind of a glib phrase that I like to use, and it's that if being mean to yourself worked, you should have everything you want right now because you've been mean to yourself your whole (laughs) life, but it's not getting you what you want. So why don't we try something different? And that's good advice, too. But we're always, I guess, sort of the human condition, we kind of stay stuck. This is what we know. We know that 
we survive, even if we are mean to ourselves. But it's terrifying to take that risk. And as you say, if we're kind to ourselves, we're going to get, I think you mentioned this earlier, we might get lazy, we might, you know, self-pity, and we can ascribe all these kind of negative things to being too kind to ourselves. We've got to be tough, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily tough love, but, you know, we tend to go in that direction, be strong, be tough, and it uh, doesn't work. Yeah, and I think part of the fear of letting go of that is that you don't have any evidence that it works. So the great thing about the research that Kristen Neff has done is that now the evidence is there. So you can even go to her research and just look up her studies and see that actually this does work and here's the proof. So we got be kind to yourself. Don't be mean to yourself. Second mm-hmm. thing. Okay. So we're talking about being compassionate, mindful, self-compassion. What's the second step? The second step is something called common humanity, and this is, in essence, just knowing that you're not alone. So you're not alone in the thing that you're going through because one of the things we often do is when we're going through something hard, we isolate, we don't want to reach out, and we feel like we're the only person who's ever gone through this. And that just compounds the bad feelings around the challenges in life. So the knowledge that the specific thing you're going through, actually many people are going through that as well. And then on top of that, there's a Buddhist concept that suffering is inevitable. So it is actually very human to suffer, and it's what we do to combat that that matters. So just the simple fact that you're suffering makes you human. It makes you part of the human race, and you are never alone. So that's another part of it. And that knowledge can really help you reach out. And often the moment that you reach out, you get that comfort that you're looking for because isolating when you're going through these things just makes things 100% worse because you don't have access to things that you could access if you were maybe telling someone about it or even just Googling about it. You know, I can think about recovering from alcoholism. So when I was in my addiction, I isolated myself. I didn't tell anyone about it. I was hiding it. And so, of course, I wasn't getting the help that I needed. But as soon as I reached out for help, recovery came very quickly because I was surrounded by a community of people who were dealing with the same thing as me. I was not alone. And that works. I think that's one of the things I have that I do do. Something happens to me that's bad or sad or something I am struggling with. I'm always thinking, well, and there's got to be of the billions of people out there, there's other people who are suffering from the same thing. It can't be only I. And one of the things I think that social media and the Internet has helped us with, and you touched that, uh, touched on it with Google, you can connect to people. You can Google your whatever you're whatever you're having to deal with. And there and you can see that there are hundreds or thousands of people out there dealing with the same thing, you know, and mm-hmm. so uh, I think that's a sort of a positive thing that has evolved um, since the internet, let's say, in the past 20 years. Absolutely. And I have so many examples from my life of a simple Google search just helping me realize that I'm not the only one who's going through this. Common humanity and suffering is inevitable. That's a good, Mm. it is. That's the Buddhist (laughs) uh, wisdom. But uh, the other, you know, when you say that, I'm, I'm thinking that in Western culture, 
we sort of fight against that. We, we want to pretend that suffering is not inevitable. If we only do the right thing, if we, uh, you know, toe the mark, if we, whatever we're supposed to do, and if we are suffering, then they're getting back to, then there's something wrong with us. And there mm-hmm. is that, I think that sort of um, ingrained in our culture to some extent. Um, we, we don't want our children to suffer. You know, we protect them. We do, you know, we do all kinds of things that in the end don't help them. Um, so we kind of, a, in a cultural sense, we're fighting against that too, that belief system, I think, because, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, we are. In the West, we do tend to attach a bit of shame to suffering. Yeah. So there's this sense that if you're not doing well, it is your fault. And if you were kind of doing things differently or if you had a better hold on things, you wouldn't be suffering. So I think there is that underlying belief that if you're suffering, it's your fault. And um, even mentioning it is sort of a sign of weakness and self-compassion that I'm referring to and just all the Buddhist precepts really just say that's not true. And the fact is you can tell yourself that you're not suffering, but that subconscious that I refer to in the book doesn't believe you. And since the subconscious is running every program in our life, it's the subconscious that dictates your outcomes, not what you tell yourself. And so it's really important to know that you can tell yourself you're not suffering, or you can do the Pollyanna thing and pretend that everything is fine, but if your subconscious doesn't believe that, your outcomes are not going to reflect that. So it's important to be honest about how you feel. Give yourself an opportunity to process those difficult emotions, and that's another Buddhist precept, which is mindfulness, and I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of mindfulness. It's simply you know, accepting what is in the present moment, and that includes how you feel about things. So those emotions that we call negative and that we try to push away or talk ourselves out of, I really advise sinking into them, even with a meditation, um, a mindfulness meditation that can help you get in touch with those feelings. Because another one of those coping mechanisms we adopt in childhood is pushing away emotions that were not accepted accepted. So we weren't allowed to come to our parents with our difficult feelings because they couldn't handle them. We got the sense very early that maybe only the only emotion that we witnessed maybe was anger, and that would be when our parents could no longer hold everything in because they're human, right? We're all human. We have emotions. We can try and push them down. We can try and talk ourselves out of it. But as soon as we're in a situation where, say, you're drinking and your defenses are down, you're not going to be able to push it down anymore. It's going to come out. So if you process it honestly, it's going to come out in a healthy way. And it actually has things to tell you. Those emotions are your friend. They have information for you. So if you're angry about something, it's probably because there's something in your life that needs to change or at least be addressed in some way. If you're feeling sad, that's a time for self-reflection. You know, you might need to go within a little bit and just kind of take care of yourself. So these emotions are not something we should be getting rid of. They're something we should be using to our advantage, whether or not we call them negative. 
So emotions are your friends. Embrace your emotions. Embrace them. Yes. Don't try to get rid of them. Exactly. Uh, they yeah. have things to tell you and teach you. Do we have, I think we've covered two uh, our common humanity, but what it was the last one? But so, and then now, what? What's the third? What do we need to do in terms yeah, of? Yeah, the third yeah. one was what we just talked about, which was the mindfulness component. Oh, the, so the mindfulness is really being with your feelings in the moment, accepting them, not judging them, not pushing them away, comforting yourself through them instead of talking yourself out of them. Okay. Well, we've covered a lot uh, of what obviously in the book, but there's, you know, you got to go out and buy the book and read it. And we only have a couple minutes left. So um, it's not your fault. The subconscious reasons we self-sabotage and how to stop. Uh, and the author is Laura K. Connell, who I've been talking to. So Laura, give us a website and or many websites, or where yeah, can we get more information you about you? I my yeah. website, um, laurakconnell.com slash book. And when you go there, you'll get a link to the Simon & Schuster website where you can purchase the book. But I'm sending you to my website because I have details there on how to get a free gift when you purchase the book. So I'm offering my resources that I charge for, and they're valued at $99. If you send me a screenshot of your purchase to my email, which you'll find at that link, I will send you your gift, and it's an online gift, so it doesn't matter where in the world you are. You can receive it right away. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I really You're appreciate welcome. it. You're welcome. It's yes. been a pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 